0: I'm Christian Weishard, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prendel Institute for Ethics at DePauw University. Kamisha Russell is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. She's here today to help us explore the connections between Black Lives Matter and her work in the ethics of reproduction.
1: So for me, a lot of the the questions I want to look at is sort of, is, is this the right thing to be paying the most attention to? The way that we do reproductive technologies now, who is most often served? Who might not be served? Are there still these connections
0: to eugenics? Stay tuned for our discussion on today's episode of Examining Ethics. Welcome to the podcast, Kamisha Russell. We're here to discuss your article, Which Lives Matter in Reproductive Biomedicine. So first of all, could you just kind of briefly set the stage for us? Like, what's the question you're hoping to answer in this piece?
1: I was actually asked to, to write the piece in 2020, I was interested in trying to connect what was going on in terms of Black Lives Matter with my ethical research in reproductive biomedicine. And then I just, yeah, I wanted to kind of think about how this idea about the value of certain lives connects with the practices of of reproductive biomedicine. It didn't end up there, but it was aimed at a publication read by practitioners more so than people who like to talk about the social and ethical implications of these things. So the idea at the time was actually to see if I could reach practitioners, um, which maybe it still does, but perhaps to a lesser extent.
0: And really briefly, what is reproductive biomedicine?
1: Reproductive biomedicine can include a lot of things. So it can be about anything that's supposed to address, I guess, any problems or health concerns um, you know, involved in uh, in reproduction. So it can be addressing infertility. It can be addressing other problems uh, of, of pregnancy. But it also you know, increasingly has moved to looking at what fetuses are like genetically. And, and so we have a lot of new genetic interventions and testing and things like that that have been developing since you know, probably the 80s. But have, have reached you know new kind of capabilities recently. So that so it also includes that sort of thing. And then uh, my main area of interest it includes assisted reproductive technologies that try to help either people who are infertile or people who are socially infertile, medically or socially, to have children. Often using uh, donor gametes, donor sperm or eggs, and sometimes using uh, surrogates as well.
0: Could you lay out for us some of the? ethics issues that one might encounter in reproductive biomedicine
1: for me there's sort of two ways i guess to to look at ethical issues so there are ethical issues that are kind of involved with the individual relationships and desires and rights and needs of people involved in a reproductive technology so there are you know there are the things that the intended parents want there's the way that they're treated by practitioners, that kind of medical ethics and questions of sort of autonomy and choice. You know, even more thornier perhaps are issues around donors and surrogates, you know, whether donors should be paid, especially egg donors, they go through a more um, elaborate process typically than sperm donors. So whether and what they should be paid or, um, you know, whether they must always be anonymous or shouldn't be anonymous. And I mean, all these kinds of, of issues And with surrogates, obviously, there are questions about payment and exploitation. There are concerns about, you know, sort of what would constitute baby selling and that kind of thing. There used to be a lot of worry about um, surrogacy when it was what we call traditional surrogacy, which meant that the person who was carrying the child for the intended parents was also a a genetic parent of that child, right? So it's, it's that was that woman's own egg and her womb that kind of surrogacy is very uncommon now now surrogacy is typically gestational surrogacy so that's where there's where IVF is done where um, an embryo is created outside the body you know bringing the the sperm and egg together outside the body to create an embryo and that embryo is then implanted in a woman who is not genetically related to the child that, that she will carry So that has to some degree reduced controversy there. So what I often talk about is not all of that, but actually what I think are sort of the larger social political ethical issues around reproductive biomedicine. And a lot of that is about kind of its origins, to what extent it remains connected to those origins. So I connect its origins to eugenics in the piece. Although I, I recognize that a lot of what was going on in the intentions of people during um, the sort of principal era of eugenics, if we will, uh, in the sort of early twentieth century is not really going on sort of in the minds of people doing reproductive biomedicine today. But I do think they but they they share a history in terms of the development of the technologies and what they believed about what we could do, how we could control or improve upon reproduction scientifically and technologically. Francoise Bayless has a nice sort of phrase she uses, our time, talent and treasure. So what what we direct time, our skills and our money toward so 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 for me a lot of the the questions I want to look at is sort of is is this the right thing to be paying the most attention to? The way that we do reproductive technologies now, who is most often served, who might not be served? Are there still these connections to eugenics? So that's the kind of ethical questions that I I tend to look at. But there are, you know, there are also a lot of interpersonal ethical questions, not to forget in the interpersonal side, besides the donors and the surrogates or the gestational carriers and the intended parents, you also have actually the children who are eventually born. And so there are ethical considerations for them, especially around questions of anonymity or non-anonymity. Do uh, children born from reproductive technologies have a right to know um, who their donor was or, or who their surrogate was? So there's lots of issues interpersonally, including with the actual children born of the technologies, but I'm more interested typically in the sort of historical and social political um, implications.
0: So you mentioned eugenics. So help us understand what eugenics is, but then then also, you know, what what's the role of race in assisted reproductive technology?
1: So um, eugenics was a really widespread movement. People tend to associate eugenics with Nazi Germany during World War II. And this idea of sort of mass extermination of people who are thought to be biologically unfit and a sort of preservation of some form of purity of um, of a white race or an Aryan race. So that people to tend to think about Nazi Germany Um, But actually, the eugenics movement was was quite a bit older um, and really widespread. So it started in the late 19th century and was very popular really until World War II because of its association with the Nazis. So it sort of lost its popularity because most people disagreed with Germany and what it had done. But it was very widespread in the U.S., everywhere else. And it was just this idea that we should apply... Scientific knowledge and sort of technological know-how to improving human reproduction. And it was based in a number of beliefs. There were race-based beliefs, and but there was actually a sort of widespread view that the sort of inferior races would die out. There was a lot of social Darwinism. The biggest concern for eugenics was always sort of the health of the white race, sort of improving the white race. And so. But actually, there's a lot of ableism there, right, where a variety of disabilities, some of which are not actually disabilities, things like idiocy or sexual promiscuity, these sort of all these things were sort of thought of as potentially biological traits. And so these character traits that can be passed on um, besides actual um, sort of physical uh, impairments as well or other actual um, conditions that we do uh, consider disabilities today. The sort of promise of eugenics was always sort of strengthening dominant races by making sure the fittest among those races reproduced and the less fit were discouraged from reproducing. And that could go up to forced sterilization. Again, not always actually people with disabilities. In the uh, case, Buck versus Bell, which allowed the Carrie Buck uh, to be sterilized by her uh, institution. So eugenics was this really widespread thing that had this idea that we have to control kind of how the human race produces and and particularly to invigorate the stronger races with the idea that the the so-called lesser races would actually kind of die out. But it did see, you know, we did see after Buck versus Bell, a lot of sterilizations as well of people of color. And there have been a ton of forced and coerced sterilization uh, you know, discoveries over time of a lot of different groups and really up to really recently. I think even um, there were claims about uh, coerced and forced sterilizations associated with migrant de- detention. So this long history of forced sterilizations which used to be practiced much more openly and widely. So then the question was about how I think race is related to um, reproductive technologies. Part of, It's part of the connection I like, I want to kind of draw out is the connection between the idea of race historically, the belief in the existence of human races, which again, sort of had this idea about how much your heredity uh, determines your character and your capabilities and how smart you would be able to be and and all, all these kinds of things. So that sort of same understanding of human heredity that brings racism, that divides people into these groups and says some are inferior or superior Is connected with eugenics, right, in in general, and is connected with this idea of reproductive biomedicine. It's this belief that scientists and can master sort of nature, you know, sort of the human reproduction. And that and, and in so doing, they can bring about improvements. And there are there are people actually who see themselves as liberal eugenicists, contemporary people who say, okay, what was, you know, clearly the old eugenics was wrong. It was based on coercion and bad science. But they think that we are past that, we can be past that now. And it's that it's not objectionable to sort of approach making the you know, sort of human beings better through science and technology. So it's, it's really sort of, a, it's, it's really still a live question. Um, and I think a lot of people's support or non-support for this sort of idea is based on whether they believe there's actually a connection between the old eugenics and um, these contemporary practices. So I see these connections really strongly in this um, sort of assumption about what science is capable of and this idea that it should be directed sort of toward reproduction in this way that what we need is you know fewer people with disabilities and that is sort of the answer to ableism right instead of you know a change to um, to society that makes things more universally accessible right um, And of course, besides that not being the answer to ableism in general, it's also the case that people become disabled and go through periods of disability throughout their lives. It's you know, not all disabilities are, um, are things people are born with. So for me, the, part of what we, are, what we ought to be concerned about is the way that these same ideas that produce race are connected with the reproductive technologies that we think about today. So that, that's sort of one connection for me between race and assisted reproductive technologies. The other one is actually just in the sort of actual use of donors and surrogates, uh, gestational carriers in the present day. So there there are a lot of race-based dynamics there. There are drop-down menus. um, Anytime you're searching a gamete bank website, they offer a lot of different types of categorization. They talk, they, there's some that talk about race, some ethnicity, some skin color. So they, they classify it in a lot of different ways, but you will typically see very early on in the process of a database search as maybe your first or second menu option, um, this sort of option to kind of match the gamete to you um, sort of ethnically or racially, or, or in terms of, of skin color. So I think this reveals how important it is to people to have children that look like them. Anyway, so so there are really interesting ways that that comes in. It also comes in with surrogates. People often hire surrogates who are in different countries, who have different skin colors. This is thought of as a way to kind of further distinguish the child that's going to be born to the surrogate from the surrogate herself, who is already not going to be genetically related. And even actually surrogates themselves report that sometimes this is helpful for them, right? That this, that to be a gestational carrier for a child of a different race helps them to detach from the idea that they are the parent of the child. I just, so I actually really just find it very interesting, right, how we sort of, what using reproductive technologies reveals about how we still think about race and how important it still is in our daily lives.
0: So you write that if we're going to try to understand how reproductive medicine and race are like intersecting and sort of meshing with each other and creating all these issues that you you've just been talking about, we need to shift away from thinking about reproductive rights towards thinking about reproductive justice and reproductive justice is something that I usually associate just with like abortion and abortion care. So why is this a shift we need to make? And specifically, why is this a shift we need to make when we're talking about uh, like IVF and assisted reproductive technologies?
1: So reproductive justice, um, there's a reproductive justice movement that was started by women of color. um, And it was started specifically in response to what they felt was left out in the sort of abortion rights movement, which was largely dominated by white women. And it's not at all the case that women of color didn't think that access to abortion was important. And and indeed, uh, you know, with everything that's going on, uh, women of color are are very likely for a variety of reasons to suffer more where abortion is restricted. So they had three pillars and one of them was the right to access abortion. But they wanted to add two other pillars based on their experiences. And so the, the second pillar was the right to have children. So not just the right not to have children, which is important, but the right to have children, because as, you know, sort of these long term victims of forced sterilization, various uh, coercive, there was a lot of coercive contraceptive use associated with welfare policy in the 90s. So a lot of sort of, you won't lose your welfare benefits if you have Norplant implanted, which is a long acting reversible contraceptive, but the thing about long-acting reversible contraceptives is they typically involve medical care, whereas with like the pill, you could just stop taking it at any point. Things like uh, Norplant, a doctor needs to remove it. Um, and actually, it's apparently much more difficult for doctors to remove Norplant than it is for them to implant that, plant it. So these experiences of these sort of coercive birth control and sterilization policies, the sort of criminalization of people who are pregnant um, often sort of based on drug use. So that this is sort of, these are sort of policies that test women um, for drugs when they're giving birth or after they've given birth, and then can pen- will potentially imprison them if drugs are found in their system. Yes, you know, this, this sort of whole approach to um, drug use as sort of a intentional and culpable endangerment of a uh, a fetus rather than an addiction. So all these experiences that women of color have had with not being allowed to reproduce freely led them to say, we need more for reproductive justice, not just the option to have an abortion, but also the right to have a child if we want to. And then the third pillar was the right to raise children in healthy and safe environments. So taking it past just birth to say like, hey, look, some of us, when we go home with our children, they are not safe. Right. Um, you know, not only from potential violence in given neighborhoods you know, or police violence growing up, but also environmental toxins or lack of availability to healthy for healthy food in neighborhoods. So all these kinds of things that that different communities are faced with that make it hard for them to raise their children in healthy ways and, and and you know so that their children can thrive. So, yeah, so the reproductive justice movement wanted to really sort of expand how we think about what it is to help women and you know and um, people who can become pregnant and people other people who reproduce who can't become pregnant to be able to really have freedom. You cannot have a child if you don't want one, you can have a child if you do want one, you can actually have that child thrive after they're born. That's sort of where the the justice distinction uh, came in with that original movement.
0: You said that you were asked to write this in 2020, right? So you're asked to write this in the midst of this uprise of the Black Lives Matter movement. What is the connection between Black Lives Matter and these, these issues in reproductive biomedicine?
1: So for me, what is what is really brilliant about the name of, of the movement, Black Lives Matter. So we associate it, I think, typically with police violence. This is, and this is a very important issue. Um, but even they themselves have a really large platform um, that involves a lot of, of ways in which we need to change the way that our, our institutions are run. What I, what I like about it is this idea of, of lives mattering, right? Which implies, right, that that those lives haven't mattered, right? So it's certainly, you know, and there's sort of the gross misinterpretation of Black Lives Matter as sort of being like only Black Lives Matter, which is, is manifestly not the point. So the so the statement Black Lives Matter is really trying to draw attention to the ways in which those lives have not traditionally mattered, right? So so that's where I sort of see this connection, right? That um, the reproduction of people of color has been much less valued than white reproduction in the U.S. You know, really since uh, since slavery. So there was a certain value in Black people reproducing under slavery because it, it created more slaves, right? But ever since then, right, there have been these ongoing and multifaceted efforts, and not just against uh, Black people, but Indigenous people, Mexican American women. There's you know, Puerto Rican women. There's a lot of of groups that have faced specific sterilization campaigns and and things uh, over time. So the idea that those lives matter, you know, it just doesn't feel that that has that has been or or even continues to be the case. When we think about Black Lives Matter, we don't want to just think about um, the lives of people who. Are old enough to experience police violence, which doesn't apparently make have to be very old. But we want to think about, you know, should there be more people of color in the world? And I and I think there's so many policies ha- since um, you know colonialism have suggested that that is not to be cared about, right? So this latest replacement theory stuff, it it connects with these sort of ideas of white populations that are going to be swamped or overwhelmed by sort of an overly reproductive non-white population. So this this has been a narrative in the U.S., it's been before, it's been a narrative in South Africa. And it's certainly an immigration-related narrative, but this sort of idea that if if there were a lot of people of color who entered any particular country, that something about that country would be changed and and made worse, right? So this this idea that there that there's not that there's not a contribution for people of color, or that they you know that only some of them can be here, or or something like you know. So, so I think it, it just really ties into a whole sort of racist worldview that sees success in a nation in an individual in a business in wherever as tied to uh, sort of whiteness and and Western values there is a tie but it's a historical tie that's based on you know sort of economic oppression and exploitation right so it is the case that um, that white nations have uh, more money but it that has been because of these, exploitative and extractive policies from colonies and pseudo colonies that that these countries have controlled.
0: So one of the reasons that this piece caught my eye was because Roe v. Wade was recently right for us right now struck down, which obviously has brought so much conversation about reproductive justice back into the mainstream. And so I was wondering, I know, I know that again, your, your piece isn't specifically about abortion care or that side of, of reproduction, but, but have your thoughts shifted or changed in any way since that decision, or does it sort of underline everything that you've set to begin with?
1: I mean, I think it would be very reasonable for any given person to say it is more urgent right now to try to protect this right to abortion than it is to worry about uh, reproductive biomedicine in general that would be a very reasonable political stance for anybody to take right now. Um this is very urgent. This might not have been the piece that I would have written in this moment because you know the the sense of urgency and and connection would it would have been different. It would have been framed differently, I think. Um but I do but I do think as we think about the effects of the Supreme Court's decision and kind of how to to fight that centering the experience of marginalized women and and other pregnant people and thinking about how they'll be affected and their needs i think it is really important there there's every reason to believe based on um the last time that abortion was illegal in the US that the better off people are, the more likely they will be to, to be able to get safe abortions that they need, that they will travel, that they will know somebody who knows somebody, um, to do things privately, um, you know, that kind of, kind of stuff. So it's just, I think that the effects, right, will be on those people who can't afford to travel. So I think we will want to be really focused on those experiences and the kinds of solutions and legislation and battles that will improve the situation of those most marginalized people in thinking about how we want to approach this. And I've I've heard really interesting, um, you know, conversations about from people who were involved in the sort of first battles prior to 1973, and who have said, you know, if there's any silver lining, this is a chance for us to do better policy than we did at that time to, um, to remake um, a right to abortion in ways that are more sensitive to um, a sort of larger group of people. With the idea, of course, that any, any solution that will help uh, the most marginalized pregnant people are certainly going to also help the people who are most privileged, right? So always to kind of center those experiences in order to create policies that are actually helpful and supportive for all.
0: If you want to find more about Kamisha Russell's other work, download a transcript of the show or learn about some of the things we mentioned in today's episode, visit prindleinstitute.org backslash examiningethics. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ladge Swing and can be found online at sessions.blue and freemusicarchive.org. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.